Guys, we're, we're continuing in our Ephesians series. So if you've got a Bible, I'd love for you to flip to Ephesians 2. Um, we're going to be talking through the second half of that chapter. But as, as we get into it, there, there's actually a, there's a theme that's going to come out of our text that, that we need to talk about together. Unity. Someone say unity. We as a country love talking about two things. We love talking about freedom and we love talking about unity, right? We're the United States, like it's in the name, right? If there's any other, like just tee it up, it's unity for us, right? We love saying things like united we stand. We, we rally around the idea of unity, but I don't know about you, but if, if I'm looking out at the kind of landscape of our country, the landscape of our world, um, there's a lot of disunity, right? Like maybe you feel it, I don't know if you've been getting people knocking on, on your dorm at your apartment or whatever, but I'm getting political things already coming on. My wife was getting like calls from different campaigns and she's like, dude, I didn't sign up for anything, but people are, have my number and they're calling me about this stuff. There's disunity on, on a political front and, and our text isn't dealing with, with that exactly tonight, but, but again, for a country that talks so much about unity, we, we feel really disunified and we're gonna feel it more and more as the season heats up. We talk about unity, but we've had a, a history of, of the evils of racism and slavery. Like 400 years of people in our country being oppressed because of the color of their skin. Be, because of, of cultural evils that have become entrenched into laws. And, and even when they're not laws, they just become kind of the patterns, the way that we, we treat other human beings made in God's image. We talk about unity, but, but that word might sound really hollow to a lot of people. and. And, and churches have actually been one of the culprits. I mean, churches throughout U.S. history deliberately overlooked or misread or misinterpreted texts to justify things that God would call sin and evil in our world. We have a unity problem. And I don't just think it's out there. Like, it's easy enough for us to kind of point the finger and be like, yeah, those people, those politicians or those people have a unity problem. But we, I think we can have a unity problem too. Maybe it doesn't show up with, with some of those big things. Like, maybe you'd nod your head and go, yeah, politics, man, we've got to clean that up. Or, or, or racism, yeah, that's wrong. But, but actually, when we begin to look at the natural patterns of our lives, we start to see ourselves dividing and, and pushing ourselves into different camps, into different tribes, different groups based on service level things. Man, are these people like me? Are we on the same team? Do we, do we have the same interests, the same hobbies in that? That's not inherently wrong. It's a kind of unity, but it's, it's a skin deep, surface level kind of unity. And, and I'm not even like pointing fingers right now, right? I'm just, I'm diagnosing, actually this is, this is where a lot of us are. If you, if you look around at your friend group, you'll probably find a lot of people that are into the same stuff as you. They like the same teams as you, they, they watch the same shows as you, they, they watch similar movies to you. We, we have a unity problem. It's not just out there, it's actually, it's actually running through, through all of our hearts. Think, things we've inherited societally, but more than that, something much, much deeper in the fabric of how we treat each other and, and we treat the world, we have, we have a unity problem. And, and I've kind of heard two answers for how we deal with this. 
One is kind of the answer of saying like, no, we don't have a problem. We're over it, right? Like we had a black president. Look, there's no racism. It's like, no, no, no. no. We, we, we don't just pretend these things go away because they keep, it's still there. And, and pretending there's not an issue just makes it worse. If your doctor gives you a diagnosis and you tell him, you're wrong, like that doesn't help you at all, right? I'm not sick. You take your antibiotics yourself, right? That's not going to help you, okay? So, so ignoring it doesn't seem to work. P- pretending it's not there doesn't work. So the other answer that I've, I've heard is kind of like, man, yeah, we would get along better if we all just, you know, got on my team, right? Yeah, man, I can't believe we're disunified. More people, if they would just come around to what's right, then we'd be unified. The answer is like, if people voted for my candidate or listened to my music or watched my movies or, or cheered for my team, then we'd finally be unified. It's a kind of unity that would only come from flattening out and leveling out real differences, differences that, that aren't wrong. Imagine if for you to be part of a connection group at Salt Company, you had to watch a certain set of movies, you had to dress a certain way when you came to connection group, or, or to get in the door at Salt Company, you had to give a, a checklist of your favorite songs and you had to make sure, okay, if you like these songs then you can come in, right? That would be, that'd be terrible. We'd, we'd be missing out on, on things that are even just part of who you are as a person. I'm not talking about categories of, uh, of sin, I'm just talking about the, the flavors and the differences of us reflecting the image of God, even, even if in a, in a broken way. We can't pretend there's not a problem, but we also can't flatten out and get rid of our differences for the sake of unity. We need, we need something different. We need a, a different solution to our unity problem. In fact, what we need to understand is, is we need a, a deeper solution than something natural. We need something supernatural. If our natural way of doing things is, is dividing or, or ignoring, we actually need a supernatural solution to this problem that feels so natural in our world. And what we're gonna see in our text tonight, actually in Ephesians 2, is that unity reflects an important aspect of our faith. Like real supernatural unity actually reflects to the world something more true about God. Unity affects you personally. This quest for unity affects you personally. But it also affects our family of faith and it affects the mission God has us on. Unity is very important. So how do we get unified? Like, how do we actually experience a God-given unity? What, what does that unity even look like in the world? As we grapple with those problems, we're gonna enter in, into Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. We're gonna look at the church in Ephesus. They had a unity problem, too. We're gonna see, man, how God's word affected them and how we can actually learn to have that kind of unity that affects, affects people around us. How do we get this unity? Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. I'm gonna start, I'm gonna read verses 11 and 12. Paul writes, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. We're gonna kind of see, actually, this text is sort of like a, a reflection of what we saw in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. This is kind of the bad news. In Ephesians 2, 1 and 2, Paul says, you were dead in your sins and trespasses. And now to these people, these Gentiles, he says, you were, you were separated. You were alienated, you were cast off, you were pushed away. It's a division along ethnic lines. It's Jewish and Gentile. 
Jewish people were, were the ones that had inherited the, the promises of God. They inherited prophecies about the coming Messiah. And Gentiles were all of those people that, that weren't in the club. All those people that, that didn't have it. And actually, if you, if you think about it, these people that were, that were separated, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, God structured that on purpose. Like God intentionally created a division in the Old Testament, but, but here's why. What he was trying to do was he was trying to create a nation and a people that would look different than the people around them. All the nations they were among had gods and, and rules their gods would follow, and God said, I'm gonna make you a special people I'm gonna give you laws about how you treat each other and what you wear and how you farm and what you eat. I'm gonna give you these laws so when people look in, they see something different. Like these laws weren't for the sake of the laws, they were to point people to the God that gave them those laws. They were supposed to be distinct. This Jew-Gentile difference wasn't, wasn't only skin deep, it was cultural, it was woven into their calendar, the, the way they treated foreigners and, and all of this was woven into the fabric of their society. Some of the goal of this, again, was so that the nation of Israel would, would be a lighthouse pointing to everyone around who their God was. And one of the centerpieces of that was the, the temple. Someone say temple. We, we don't have temples to, to celebrate our religion anymore, but God had said, hey, I'm gonna make my presence especially felt in this place. You can count on, on me accepting your sacrifices at this place. This is where my glory and presence are gonna dwell even just a little bit on this earth. And, and all of the way that Israel was supposed to interact with the world was to point and say, our God is here, come meet him, come encounter him. Again, they were a lighthouse pointing to their God. But, but look back at verse 11. Paul brings up these terms, circumcision and the uncircumcision. I'm not gonna define it for you. Um, go home later if you need to, I don't know. Don't Google it, but ask your connection leader. Um, one of the, the ways that you would become Israelite, the, the main way was you had to adopt all of the laws and rules. You had, to, you had to jump in with the dietary restrictions, all of that stuff, and for men, you had to take the permanent physical mark on your body of circumcision. You want in, there's no going out, right? Like, this is it one time. If you want in, you need to be circumcised, but, but Paul has the uncircumcision in quotes there in verse 11, because this, this mark, this sign of God's covenant promise actually became a, a racial slur for those who were outside. Jewish people started to call other people uncircumcised, like, like a racist term, like you uncircumcised dogs. Like you have no place with us. The, this group of people that was supposed to be a lighthouse to the world, pointing to their God, inviting people in, began to use their differences as, as a way to divide. And again, they created racist terms around God's, God's covenant markers and signs for people. So Paul's writing to these Gentiles, these people that used to be pushed away and said, no, no, you're not part of this. You don't get any part of this. We don't, we don't even want you in. He's saying, you used to be called the uncircumcision, but, but again, look at verses 11 and 12. He says, at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, you were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. He says, okay, on, on a fleshly level, on a, on a natural level, on an earthly level, there was division there. Yeah, you weren't born into this thing. But actually, the, their circumcision for some of them only went skin deep. There's a, a thread and a theme. It pops up at least three different places in the Old Testament where God says, I don't just want a circumcision of your flesh. I want a circumcision of your heart. Someone say heart. He's talking about 
your, your emotions, your identity, your patterns of, of decision-making, your will. He says, I want my, my laws and my distinction and my rules to not just be something you do, but actually an overflow of who you are. The, the living out of this old system was, was by faith in God, but, but these people were excluded based on natural barriers. In a church of people that, that were all pointing to Jesus as their savior, Friends, they, they needed a supernatural solution because the, the natural place they were in was, was division and separation from the covenants of God. But we start to get to some good news. Look at verse 13. I'll read 13 through 15. This is kind of that, that but God section, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. You were far off, you were separated, you had, you had division, there was no way, Gentiles, you were coming near to the temple, to the place of God, to be with God's people. But now, Christ has made a way. But now Christ in himself has made a way. You've been brought near by the blood of Christ. There's a phrase in, in actually in verse 14 you need to see. He talks about the dividing wall of hostility. So Paul is referencing temple language. I talk about the temple was kind of the centerpiece of Israel. That the, the first temple was destroyed and they built a second temple later. And with the second temple, they kind of made some upgrades, they thought. They added some additions, more than what God's plan was. They had different courtyards that, that different groups of people were allowed to come into. So one was the, the courtyard of the Gentiles. Gentile people could come here, but then there was a wall. Gentiles, you're not allowed to pass. After that, there was a court of women. Ladies, all right, you're allowed to be here. Okay, that's good. And then after that, there was a wall. Actually, you, you can't come any farther. Then there, there was a place where, where all the Israelite men could come in general. Okay, you can be here, but then there was another wall. Only priests were allowed to come beyond that place. And on the wall, separating the Gentiles from the Jewish people, um, they actually excavated and found a phrase that said something like, Gentiles, if you pass beyond this wall, your death is on your own head. Talk about a dividing wall of hostility, Right? Imagine being a Gentile that hears about this God and this distinct people and, and you go to the temple, you wanna meet this God but there's, there's a clear barrier there that says, no, based on how you were born, you're, you're not allowed in. Even if you wanted to come find out more about this God, no, no, you are not allowed to go anywhere near. Your death is on your own head. There was a dividing wall of hostility and actually one interesting thing, if you read, I think it's in Acts 19, um, Paul probably wrote this letter after he was arrested in Jerusalem and the reason he was arrested in Jerusalem was because he was hanging out with an Ephesian guy and, and some Jewish people from the area saw Paul, saw Paul with this Ephesian guy and they thought he must have brought that Ephesian guy into the temple. He, he didn't, but they thought this, this Jewish guy Paul hanging out with this Gentile guy from Ephesus, no, that can't be right. He must be up to something bad. So Paul was arrested. He was put on trial. They had plots against his life because he was hanging out with a Gentile in Jerusalem. Talk about hostility, right? 
This church, the church in Ephesus would have known this story. The guy, the Ephesian guy would have come back and told them the story like, man, this is crazy, this happened to Paul. We were just hanging out, I don't know why. So when Paul references the dividing wall of hostility, they, they would have had some of this temple language coming to mind. But, but again, Jesus, Jesus himself broke down this wall, Paul says. He says, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You don't need to go to the temple anymore to offer sacrifices. You don't need the blood of bulls or goats. Jesus is the sacrifice that draws you to the presence of God. He himself is our peace. He made both one. And Paul starts to drop some nuggets in for the Gentile believers, but also for the Jewish believers. In verse 13 he says, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He says, he has made us both one And in verse 15, he starts to say, listen, those old rules and ordinances, he actually, he's abolished those laws. Those don't hold you anymore. They don't bind you anymore. Not that they were evil or wrong, but that Jesus in himself fulfilled them. You don't have to put on a certain culture to become a Christian now. That would have been crazy to Gentile ears. I know that's hard for us to understand a little bit, but imagine if, for you to be fully Christian, you had to learn a new language. Like if you really want to accept Jesus, all right, you've got to learn Greek. If you really want in. If you really want in, you, you have to start dressing in a way that you've never dressed before. All right, if that, that's what you've got to do. Paul is saying, no, no, you can be of the culture of the people you're created to be, but submitted to Christ, changed by Christ now. Keep reading, this gets deeper still. Verse 16, so he says, making peace and and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He came and he preached peace. Jesus preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. Through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Paul is saying, Gentiles, you needed peace preached to you. You needed reconciliation with God, but actually you weren't the only ones. Who did Jesus preach peace to? Those who were far off and those who were near. Jewish people that that didn't know Jesus, didn't have a past to get in with God, they they were given the promise that the Savior would come, but they had to trust the Savior. There, There aren't two ways to get to God. There is one way, the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus. And so for Gentile believers or Jewish believers, it's the same, it's the same way, it's through the same person, Jesus. Maybe you've heard this phrase before, that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Anyone heard that? It's this idea that whatever your background, whatever you're born into, you're not born into faith. You're not born being saved, born believing. You need peace preached to you. You need to accept that offer from God. Gentile, pagan, crazy Greek background or or upright religious Jewish background, Maybe your story is running from God, running after drugs or relationships or popularity, whatever, or, or you're a good church kid that's known the right answers for a long time. You need peace and reconciliation. You, you don't earn those things from God by behaving well enough, performing well enough. You're not born into them. You don't get there by your upbringing. It's a gift offered by Jesus. He reconciles us both in one body. He kills 
the hostility in himself. That, that, that's an interesting idea that he kills the hostility. We're gonna come back to it, but what we're seeing so far is that we actually need a supernatural source of our unity. We need a supernatural source of our unity. And we're seeing that they're actually supernatural realities to our unity. Not, not cheap surface level answers, but radically different people being brought together in a new family. And a radical depth to that unity based on what Jesus has done. I'm gonna finish our passage, I'm gonna unpack the idea a little bit more, but look at, look at 19 through 22. Paul says, so then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place by God, the Spirit. Look at that idea, Jesus being the cornerstone. Look back at that, that's in verse um, 20. There's temple language in this whole thing, but maybe you've heard the idea of Jesus being a cornerstone. A cornerstone is the stone that they would try to find to set the pattern for the whole building. If the stone was, was off or wonky, your walls would start to get off in different directions. You were looking for a stone that would set the pattern. So Paul is saying Jesus actually in his reconciliation and redemption sets the pattern for what we look like together. What does he mean by that? He means before we find unity between each other, before we find reconciliation or peace between each other, we actually needed a supernatural reconciliation. We actually stood divided and distant from God. There was more distance and division between the holy God of the universe and you than there will ever be between you and another person. There was way more distance between God's holiness and goodness and justice than you. But he didn't sit in his holiness and his power and, and let, you, let you be divided and far away. Jesus stepped in flesh. He, he came down among us. He took on our flesh. He entered a, a sinful, jacked up, disunified world to offer us peace. Not a cheap peace, actually a really costly peace. He paid for that peace with a perfect life with a sinless death as a sacrifice for you. That's the pattern. That's the cornerstone. That's, that's the foundation on which we together are built. That good news of what Jesus did and him raising to life to give us life with God and with each other, that's the pattern of our reconciliation. It's not saying like, all right, Jesus was good, so go out and try hard to be like Jesus, right? Like, it's, it's not like that. It's, it's saying actually what he's done in you begins to flow through you as we're built together, as we grow together. Look back at verses 21, 22. It's built on the foundation that Jesus is our cornerstone in whom, in, in Jesus, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And again, listen to this for you tonight. In him, in Jesus, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 
Jesus accomplishes our reconciliation once for all when we accept him, right? He died one death for us. We're, we're united with Christ, but there's this building language. There's this growing language. We are actually growing together to reflect what he's done for us. Maybe you've heard the terms justification, sanctification. Justification is being made right with God one time, declared right when you trust Jesus. Sanctification is, is ongoing, it's growing, it's building. And you're being built into a holy temple. Think about that for a minute. You're being built into a temple. In the Old Testament, the temple was the center of Jewish life, and many of us would never have been allowed to, to set foot anywhere near the place where God's presence went. But it, but it was a place where people were promised, if, if you pray, God will hear your voice. If you offer sacrifices, you will accept it. That was the center, and, and their whole life as a community was supposed to be a lighthouse pointing to that God. Now, we, from our different backgrounds, from our different struggles, from our, our different cultures and, and preferences, if we're in Christ, we're becoming the temple. Not, not a building, not a location, but a people. God is choosing to let his presence be experienced through us. This is a supernatural, missional dimension of our unity. When the world looks in, they're actually supposed to see something true about God when they see the pattern of how we live. We, we need a supernatural solution to our unity. We, our, our unity actually has much deeper roots than we've seen, but our unity also has missional implications. Our mission is at stake here. Friends, our unity is a witness to the world around us that we've been united with God. But if we let disunity and division stand, we cripple our mission. Here's, here's one way I wanna summarize what we're seeing from our text. Our unity with Christ leads to unity, true unity with each other. If we have this deep unity with Christ, it begins to lead towards unity with, with each other. Uh, another way you could say it is, Jesus makes old enemies a new family. That's the reality of what we're seeing in the church in Ephesus, but, but keep, keep that phrase on the screen for me. How many of you in here have enemies? You don't raise your hand, but I almost saw someone in the back raise your hand. You're cool, but hey, I don't think the issues with the unity around us are, are so much this idea of, of hostility and enemies, right? Even as I'm trying to paint the picture of this Jewish-Gentile divide, you might be thinking like, man, that is so far from my world, so far from my reality. You might be thinking like, I, I don't feel that level of disunity with people around, and, and man, if I'm wrong, tell me, but even if you looked around the room, I, I don't think you feel hostility to other people, but you might feel apathy, you might be feel complacency. Like you might actually be lazy when it comes to this idea of unity. Not hostile, no, you're cool. But actually your laziness might be crippling the mission. Laziness is natural, right? Laziness is totally natural. Like it is hard to push for true unity, especially when people are very different. When they have different cultures or perspectives or ethnicities, like it, true unity can be hard. But if we lean into the natural, we miss the supernatural thing God wants to do, don't we? 
your laziness might actually be crippling your witness. Your lack of, of unity, intentional unity in the body might actually be hindering people from seeing the God you're unified with. Friends, who do you need to reach out to? Like, who is that person that, that maybe you've actually been avoiding because it was a little bit tough? Is it someone in your connection group? Is it someone that you see at Salt or, or another believer on your campus that you, you know they're, they're in Christ, but they're not in with you? Where does your unity need to trump your comfort so you can actually be on mission for God? In our passage, we, we saw that there's an ethnic, there's a racial tension and dimension to their lack of unity. The reality is, guys, it, it is difficult to be a minority. And I'm not gonna pretend like I know that full experience, but I know for many of us, you've actually never been a minority in any context. Like I'm talking to my white people out here, right? Like, like for, for many of us, you've actually, when people talk about their experience, it is so foreign to you, you don't know how to enter in and engage. And like, that's okay. You might never be able to fully understand, but if we're truly unified and united with brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to begin to feel with our brothers and sisters when they hurt. We need to begin to, to listen and to ask good questions. We need to begin to make space for people to be authentic and have their authentic voice for who they are without having to fit into the categories that we're comfortable with. And again, this is, like, I'm, not, I'm not blaming anyone in here, but it is much easier for us to live out the patterns and the cultures that we've always had and forget that might not be natural for other people. Like you might be missing unity in Christ because you've been comfortable with people that look like you, that sound like you, that act like you, that have the same background as you. One step that, that we, all of us can take is actually begin to ask good questions and listen. Like meet with a brother or sister in Christ, someone that you, you share this true unity, the one savior, the one spirit, the one father, you share that unity but that's different than you. Meet with them and ask them some questions. Ask them how they come to know Jesus. What's he been doing in their life? Begin to ask and listen. Let those things that truly unite us begin to shape our interactions rather than letting those, those natural things divide us. Here's maybe a diagnosis that you need to, to have. When you talk to people, when you're in conversations with brothers and sisters, maybe even in connection group, do you tend to talk most about yourself? Like does conversation around you kind of always come back to you? That's not seeking unity, that's, I mean, that's seeking unity as far as you're concerned. If they're into you, then great, but, but when we begin to practice unity, we start to look at the interests of others. Like, like Jewish Christians would begin to look at the interests of Gentile Christians that they used to reject. Gentile Christians would look at Jewish Christians that, as this church in Ephesus grew and maybe, maybe the Jewish Christians became a minority and, and they, would, they would ask them like, how are you doing? How's it going in this city with so many idols? Start to ask people questions and listen and diagnose your conversation. Are you, are you a unifier in conversation caring about the other? Or actually, are you just trying to, to make it about you? You, you, might, you might even want to diagnose, man, what is my closest community? Like, think about the people that, that are the people speaking into your life and the people you are most comfortable with. Are they people that, that are maybe on your team? 
or, or share your interests or share your politics or your favorite mu- movies or music or whatever. They, they share those things, but they're not actually in Christ with you. Like, are the people that you feel most united to people that actually aren't united with Christ? But you have a lot of natural things in common. You might be thinking, yeah, yeah, I'm a missionary. Like, I'm going after people that, that don't know Jesus. I get it, but if your closest community is not other followers of Jesus, you are sacrificing your mission. You can't be the missionary God is calling you to be if your closest community is not other people that share this supernatural unity with you. The friends you're trying to share the gospel with aren't seeing the gospel lived out in your life. The implication when it comes to us being united together in Christ. You can't be the missionary God's calling you to be if your core community are not other people that are following Jesus with you. And from that place, you can begin to invite people in. You can invite them to see what God is doing and to to see what it's like when God unites different people. Man, let me go just one step deeper, guys. Are you dating someone who is not united with Christ and you would claim to be? Like, are, are, you, are you saying, man, I, I want aspects of my life to unite with this person, but they don't actually share the thing that you are saying is the truest and deepest unity of your existence. If you're trying to unite your life with a person or, or at least spend a bunch of your time because you really like them, if you're trying to do that with another person and they don't share the reconciliation and peace that Christ has given you, you're hurting the unity that you have with the body, you're hurting your mission, you're, you're hurting your walk with Jesus. I'm not, like, I'm not like telling you, hey, give me your boyfriend's phone number, I'm gonna call him and break up for you, but I, I'm saying you're missing out. This language in, in verses 21 and 22 of, of growing together and growing into, you are actually missing out, and in you missing out, we miss out with you. When, when you are, are separating from the unity, we feel that too. We might not ever ever know it, but we actually miss out on your gifts and your abilities and your passion. We miss out on the ways that God has wired you and the perspective that that we could be on mission together. Please, please don't deprive us of that by you going after someone that's not united with Christ. You're missing out. I think for many of us, we, we... we have divisions in our lives that we need to repent of. We have prejudices that we're ashamed of, we'd never admit. We've got, we've got a certain category of people maybe that we wouldn't, we wouldn't naturally associate with and we need to begin to repent of that. When these are brothers and sisters in Christ that God has unified us with, if we, if we see those roots of disunity in our hearts, we begin first to go to God and repent. People he made in his image, man, if, we are, if we're dividing and pushing them away, we need to repent to their maker. And then in humility, we need to go and talk to them. That could be along racial lines. That could be socioeconomic lines. That could be hawk fans and cyclones. I don't know, but, but, but I know that all of us see these divisions in our lives. We don't just ignore them or pretend they're not there. We repent. And we accept, again, the reconciliation that Jesus has given us. We accept the grace gift that he has offered us. We accept the hope that we have in him. Man, finally, guys, I think some of you guys should go on a summer team. I think you'll begin to experience true unity when you share a mission with some people 
and you get outside of your comfort zones and your natural lanes for two months, and you sweat it out, and you try food you've never tried before, and you're in a city you have no idea about, you can't read any of the language, but, but you're with a group of people that are united in Christ, and you're sharing the gospel with people, and you're seeing Jesus come alive. Some of the, the most beautiful moments of worship I've had aren't necessarily the big stage, aren't necessarily the, the loud music, the screen, the band, whatever. Some of the most beautiful moments of worship I've been part of it, Actually, I got to go to a house church in East Asia um, and, and sing worship songs with some friends singing in a language I've, I know, know none of at all. I couldn't, I couldn't sing a word of it, but, but I heard a tune that I heard. It was like a Hillsong song that they had translated in this language, and I just started singing in English as they were singing in their language. And it, it's illegal for them to be Christians there. It's illegal for them to do that, but as, as we started singing together to the same God, as the same Holy Spirit filled us, as God heard our worship as, a, as an offering to him of thanks. Man, I felt more unified with these people that, than I have with a lot of other people in my life. And we literally like, couldn't talk to each other, right? I want you to experience that. I want you to begin to taste some of this community. Dream with me for a minute. Like, dream with me about what your school would look like if we began to practice this unity. If, if God's supernatural unity began to infect our lives and our community, what would happen? I was at um, Cornell College a couple years ago and with a few students. Kyler was a student at the time. Um, and there was, a, there was a division between the, the jocks and the nerds, right? You guys maybe know this at your school. There was a table full of people on the same sports team and then there was a table full of theater people. And I was talking with one of our students and um, I told him, man, wouldn't it be cool if one day like there was a table just full of believers together? Like jocks and nerds hanging out together. I'm just kind of riffing, you know, I'm getting weird. But she's like, ah, I don't know if that would ever happen, right? Like it was, it was so far beyond what she had seen so far. But it could happen. Like if, if Jews and Gentiles can come together in the same church with the same Lord, certainly at your school, in your cafeteria, jocks and nerds, people in, in way different majors, people in different connection groups, people from different walks of life and different backgrounds could come together and be, be a lighthouse, be a witness, be a temple pointing to God. We live in a world hungry for unity. We live in a world divided and not coming up with solutions to that division. But the God of the universe crossed the dividing wall of hostility. Jesus in his flesh broke down that dividing wall between us in our sin and a holy God. And as he brings us into his presence, he brings us in together. He is growing us together to be a temple for the world to see our God and to hear this good news. Guys, let's pray that God makes that more true in us and let's worship in response to what he has done to save us. God, I pray tonight that you would convict us. That you would convict us of the ways that we have been apathetic or lazy when it comes to unity. Convict us of the places where we've been scared scared of people's opinions or, or ashamed where we've been operating out of things that are natural but not, not actually accepting your supernatural power first in, in restoring us to yourself 
and then in joining us together. I pray that tonight you'd begin unifying us as a community, as a family, spread out in our, on our campuses, our workplaces, but that you begin to grow us together into, man, into, a, into a holy temple. As your spirit lives in us, help us to proclaim with our actions and our unity the good news that you're our savior. We wanna worship you in response to that, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen.